race, sexism, class, and fame. The themes and issues surrounding the O.J. Simpson trial still resonate today, two decades later. On Pop Culture Confidential, showrunners Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski on their new TV series, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, American Crime Story. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Thank you for listening. The new FX series, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, follows what has been called the trial of the century. The 1994-95 horrific murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman and the year-long trial of football legend O.J. Simpson. The series really is one of the most interesting of the season, as it resonates as loudly today as ever. It examines the racial tensions of Los Angeles, the flaws in the American justice system, our obsession with celebrity culture, and a 24-hour news cycle. The casting is outstanding. John Travolta is the larger-than-life litigator Robert Shapiro, and David Schwimmer, O.J.'s best friend Robert Kardashian. The defense attorney, Johnny Cochran, is played by Courtney Vance, and O.J. by Cuba Gooding Jr., and the prosecutor, Marsha Clark, who endured such scrutiny and sexism during the trial, is played incredibly well by Sarah Paulson. Yeah, what have you got? Got two victims in Brentwood. Brentwood? Nobody gets killed in Brentwood. All right. You're going to say this case is all about race? Yes, because it is. I'm not a public personality. I don't know how to do this. He's my friend. I don't turn my back on people. You're turning your back on Nicole. Who the hell signs a suicide note with a happy face? I ain't trying to be respectful. I'm trying to win. You want to make this a black thing? Well, I'm not black. I'm OG. The show is based on Jeffrey Tubin's book, The Run of His Life, and the 10-part series is produced by Ryan Murphy, known, for example, for Glee and American Horror Story. And it's created, written, and executive produced by my guests, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, best known for writing biopics about really unusual characters in movies such as Ed Wood, The People vs. Larry Flint, and The Man on the Moon. The first episode of the series broke viewer records for FX in the U.S., with 5 million viewers tuning in. I'm very happy to have Mr. Alexander and Mr. Karaszewski with me on the show today. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Oh, thanks for having us. Thank you, thank you. Let's see if we can see who's who here, Um, Mr. Alexander. (laughs) (laughs) This is me, this is Scott. Okay, and Larry... And this is this is Larry. Okay. And we'll we'll occasionally acknowledge who we are just so we can keep everything straight. Your pros, your pros. Um, congratulations for being the most watched debut in FX history. That was amazing. It's it's one of those things. It's it, it's funny that um, you know three years ago when we had this idea with our with our co-producers Brad Simpson and Nina Jacobson, like we had no idea what the appetite would be for the show. I mean, we we knew how enthralling it was to us. But we didn't know whether people cared. We didn't know whether we were we were too late, like people were sick of hearing about the O.J. Simpson trial, or whether we were too early. It's, you know, it's, right. it, 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 we just didn't quite know. And the fact that it 
it to seem to have hit the the zeitgeist with the with the power that it has has, has been really satisfying. Right. Well, I remember vividly twenty years ago hearing the news of the the brutal murders of Nicole Simpson and Ron Goldman, and I watched yeah. the Bronco Chase, yeah. and I read Dominic Dunn and Vanity Fair, and watching your show. It's just still riveting and even more outlandish than I remember. If we have some young listeners here in Sweden, how did people see O.J. before the murders? Yeah, that, that, that's a really important distinction to try to put out there. Cause it, it, it's so hard for young people to recognize. I mean, the, the, the O.J. we all know now and we, we see in the tabloids is this chunky, glowering guy who eats too many oatmeal cookies sitting in a... <laughs> in a prison in Nevada. He's in prison for robbery, right? Yeah, it's, it's stupid. He he was stealing his own sports memorabilia uh, from a bunch of guys in the hotel room because he, he didn't like the deal he had made. It's, just, it's sort of nonsensical. That, though there is some sort of uh, cosmic justice going on somewhere. Right. Um, so the OJ that Larry and I grew up with was sort of untouchable. He He, I mean, in the 1970s, he was one of the great sports heroes. You know, there, there's only a few of these guys in any generation, you know, sort of, you know, like Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Babe Ruth. I mean, I mean, he, he was just, he was beloved. He was unstoppable. And he crossed over. Uh, he became, he became an actor. He was never a great actor, but he, he was in a lot of big movies. He's in the Towering Inferno. He's in Capricorn One. He's in the Naked Gun. Mm-hmm. He was on a lot of TV shows. And then, uh, most importantly, he was the spokesman for Hertz Rent-A-Car, uh, which you know, to go back then, uh, he was he was black, and and he was the public face of one of the biggest companies in the world. Right. And he and he had a really friendly persona. And um, uh, just a really sweet public disposition, and so and when we try to remind uh, the viewers of this a few times because it's really hard to remember that because it's you know that's going back 40 years, and so when when the when the murders happened, it, it was just inconceivable that someone with, with such a friendly persona could be the really the only suspect. And it was also very important to us. I think that's uh, you know in the casting of of Cuba uh, Gooding Jr. You know uh, when we it was first announced, there were a couple of critics who said, "Oh, I would never believe uh, Cuba is a killer," mm-hmm. and that was precisely why we cast him for the role. In the sense that we we needed somebody who had that sort of friendliness, that sort of beloved personality. You know, Cuba's an Academy Award winner. You know, is so this idea that we weren't casting someone sinister. We were casting someone that made you know that so people people today could understand why there was such a disbelief for the first uh, first half of the trial, where like you know that that person could not do this vicious crime. Did Cuba have any any reservations about taking the role? Do you know? No. You know, it's a great part for Cuba. Yeah, and also, uh, you know, whatever, we, we've known Cuba for a long time. When we wrote the People vs. Larry Flint, that was the same year that he won the Oscar for uh, for Jerry Maguire. So it's one of those things where our paths have crossed many times and we wanted to work with each other for, for a while. So uh, it just happened to be the, the, the perfect opportunity. Right. You've written many features. You just mentioned Larry Flint and Ed Wood about real people. But in this case, more 
than any. I really think of that old trope that comes to mind. You just can't make this stuff up. What was it that surprised you or shocked you um, doing this three-year research that you hadn't realized? Well, we were going out of our way to find the crazy stuff that nobody knows and that we didn't know. Uh, when we had our, our, our first meeting with Fox three years ago, this is what we all talked about, which was, well, yeah, yeah, everyone, everyone, it's like, hey, even in Sweden, they watched the Bronco Chase. Yes. <laughs> uh, they, you know, they, they watched the verdict. Everyone knows that. But to, to make it work for 10 hours, we just have to jam it with weird, weird trivia and interesting, nutty stuff that nobody knows and nobody remembers. And, and Larry and I love doing research, and that's probably why we ended up spending three years on this project, which is kind of insane for a for a TV show. <laughs> and you know, everybody knows he he jumped into that Bronco and drove down the freeway, but the stuff that happened the day of the Bronco, leading up to the Bronco, is completely nuts, and nobody really remembers that. And uh, mm-hmm. he ended up he was hiding out in in, in Robert Kardashian's house with an army of experts and doctors and, and nurses. And there was this whole giant defense game going down before he finally fled out, out the back of the house. And that sort of stuff is just completely crazy and interesting to us. Right, right. And I think another gigantic thing, and this is, much, this is, this is less than just, just, you know, like all the specific that, that surprises us, is uh, what really changed in our minds was our attitudes towards all the various principles. I think anyone who was alive, particularly in, in the States during 94 and 95, you saw these people on TV and they were, their lives were so dissected and you got this sense of them watching every day in the courtroom that you developed these really strong opinions. You had one opinion about Johnny Cochran, another about Chris Darden and Marsha Clark. And just doing all our research, we really... Just discovered them to be real human beings as opposed to this caricature that that everyone kind of made of them. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that's what sort of, I wouldn't say surprises as much as gave us a great sense of satisfaction. I think when people watch the show, you're going to understand, you know, what's happening underneath Johnny Cochran's sort of uh, flamboyant personality. Right, you'll, right. you'll understand that, yes, he, he is a bit of a showboat, but he is also very sincere in his fight against, uh, you know, police corruption and violence against the African-American community. You'll understand, you know, Chris Darden always uh, is a bit of a Charlie Brown-like character who didn't really uh, have a side in, in this case. And, you know, you'll see this, uh, how much that brought so much pain to his life. He was really a man without a country. Uh, and Marsha Clark, uh, you know, one of, one of the things that really blew our minds was the Everyone looks at this case in terms of race, but very few people look at this thing in terms of gender and what Marsha Clark had to put up with. Amazing, shocking sexism. Yeah, and it was it was all going on right in front of us, but nobody nobody was noticing it at the time. What were some of the things she had to put up with? I mean, well, I, I mean, in her, in her personal life, uh, she unfortunately filed for divorce three days before the murders, and so she was juggling that. Uh, she was. As the trial progressed, uh, she started being judged differently than the men, and she was the only uh, w- woman, you know, with a major role in the case. And she's being judged for her appearance, for her manner. Um, there's focus groups that don't like her. There's mock jurors who don't like her. Uh, we actually ended up devoting all of episode six to 
sort of this double standard where nobody is commenting upon, you know, Bob Shapiro's appearance, but you actually you actually have mainstream news organizations commenting upon her haircut and upon her her pantsuits, and it's just completely uh, completely crazy. Um, crazy. Also, uh, with, with Marsha, we we sort of had this idea, which ended up being really interesting, which was sort of the socioeconomic difference between prosecutors and, and criminal defense lawyers. And, and, we, and we tried to highlight this in the show in, in that the defense team, they've got a lot of assistants and paralegals and worker bees and they, you know, they, they can, they can work until six o'clock and then they can go out for a fancy dinner and go out to a movie premiere and get a good night's sleep. And uh, meanwhile, Marsha is taking her homework home with her. And she's staying up till till 2 a.m., you know, know, reading juror questionnaires because she doesn't have enough assistance. Right. Uh, You know, and then so she's coming in tired the next morning. And and, uh, the the show sort of does a good job of of also sort of making this point with with a lot of visuals in terms of we we talked a lot about how the prosecutors live in a world of, of fluorescent lights. And, you know, the defense attorneys have nice, soft, indirect lighting. And, you know, you'll see lots of scenes of the defense attorneys eating in fancy restaurants. But when you see Marsha and, and, the, and the district attorney eating lunch, they're eating off paper plates, crouched over a coffee table <laughs> in a conference room. And, and you know, and, and this is also trying to make the point that they have it a lot harder. It really resonates today almost more than you want it to in terms of the pervasive racial tensions between police and citizens, which I think yeah, is what yeah. Johnny Cochran sort of, um, he made the trial. He actually put the LAPD on trial instead of OJ. Was it, did the prosecution not see that coming? Did Marsha Clark not see that? Marsha Clark, I think, became aware of it, but she, you know, was under the impression that the facts mattered, that that she, you know, she never had this much evidence against a suspect uh, in a in a murder trial before. So she, they thought it was done, right? Yes, and and on top of that, he ran on, on national television. The amount of evidence is crazy. Yeah. So for right. her, she's yes, this was she saw it for what it initially was, which was a distraction, a side show that that Robert Shapiro, OJ's uh, OJ's attorney, used was using race as a smokescreen to sort of just you know, try to try to get the attention off his client's guilt. But when Johnny Cochran took over the case, there was there was Johnny Cochran's life mission and it picked up traction and um and so Marsha looked at it as a case about domestic violence. I mean he had a history of of, of beating his wife and, and to the point she right. was almost dead before. So she just thought she made a bunch of crucial mistakes. But she believed at the end of the day, the, the evidence would, you know, once, once, the, once a jury heard what went on, they would, they would come to the conclusion O.J. was guilty. I mean, I think the plot of our show is how that wasn't the case. I'm trying to win. You want to make this a black thing? Well, I'm not black. I'm O.J. You're losing control. This is a fiasco. You're afraid there's going to be more riots. This has got to stop. I deserve to get hurt. Choose a side. Hopefully, I think by the end of the, the 10 hours, you'll understand 
why the jury came back the way they did. And and, and less than a, a matter of ridicule or anything like that, you say, well, wait a second, you know, was there was there reasonable doubt? Was there, you know, there's a bunch of crazy things that happened, including uh, the involvement of a of LAPD officer named Mark Furman, uh, who, oh, don't give it away, Larry. I won't give it away. But, no, uh, no, no. but we remember so how racist he was. About a real-life case is 20 years old. There's a lot of things that seem like spoilers or secrets. Oh. So. You, you ruined the ending. Yes, I ruined the ending. And the, But there's another bunch of cast of characters in this in this story that I don't even know if the viewers here know that his his best friend was Card- Robert Kardashian. Yeah. Um, and I know, I understand that Chloe um, is not a happy camper, that they're not they've reacted against the show. Are you surprised? They're not. I would say, here's the weird thing. That's what sort of the headlines say, but if you actually read the text or you actually watch her full interviews, they're not really, they, they are very happy with how her father is being, their father's being portrayed in the show. We, you know, we look at Robert Kardashian as the, almost like a moral center. He's the only guy involved uh, in this trial who's, doing it for the right reason in which sense he's there he's there because he's he's loyal to his friend his best pal says he didn't do the murder and he's he's choosing to believe him rather than than all these all this all these facts and things like that so Kardashian comes across as a really sympathetic character and as the episodes go on you'll see how torn he becomes and what the Kardashian mm-hmm. girls are 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 you know will point out is is yes indeed they 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 did not necessarily chant their name when their dad was on TV that day, uh, right. but we were we we wanted part of the other one of the other threads we wanted to work into the show is sort of the beginning of 24-hour media, uh, around-the-clock news and, and reality television. You have people like Kato Kalin and, and Faye Resnick and, and Kardashian in the middle of this. We couldn't help but just feel like like if your father was one of the main figures in this circus, how how could that not at least put the seed of the Kardashian empire in these young women's heads? And uh, and at the end of the day, the, the the girls are only in five minutes of the entire show. Uh, yeah, don't get your hopes up. Yeah. Okay. Um, but with such a vivid cast of characters, I mean, even for us when we were watching it, um, you tend to sort of forget that that in the middle of this, there's an incredible tragedy for the Goldmans and for yeah. the Browns. Um, um, how did you think uh, consider this while you were writing? I mean, we wanted to be respectful. To the victims, I mean, there, there is, there, there's obviously a, a, a lot of high satire going on about all these other people uh, because everyone was sort of trying to milk the situation to promote themselves. Um, you know, but at the center of this, you know, were Nicole and, and Ron, who, who were who were innocent victims. So we, 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 we you know, we, we, we just we try to. You know, treat them well, and uh, and Fred Goldman, Ron's father, sort of became the the face of the families during the trial. Mm-hmm. And um, episode episode four, we 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 sort of give him a, a giant monologue, which sort of was sort of the mission statement yeah. for the families, which which was, you know, in 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 essence, why is this a big carnival? Yeah. Why? Why? Why are people? Right, right. Why? Why are people just treating this as, as, as you know, the TV show of all time? Why? Why are people forgetting that there's two dead, dead innocent people? And what becomes even more perverse as the trial went along, uh, and this was the genius of, of Johnny Cochran and Robert Shapiro's defense, was at a certain point, uh, not not to ruin uh, the end of the of the miniseries, but it's 
OJ stops being the person on trial. And, and it, it and and they flip the trial around and it becomes putting the LAPD, the Los Angeles Police Department, on trial, uh, and it sort of becomes a referendum on on their decades of mistreatment of blacks in Los Angeles. You know, which is which is certainly a, a valid criticism, but it has absolutely nothing to do with who killed the two people on Bundy Drive. But what was amazing for us was when we first started writing the show, we didn't know how powerful and of the moment a lot of what Johnny Cochran was talking about would would sort of become. Yeah, it's just I mean, amazing. In the United States, the past couple of years, there's been uh, um, just uh, an insane amount of, of uh, you know, bad interaction between police forces and the African American community. And, and, you know, as we read the headlines every single time, it, it was... It was, you know, incredibly depressing just to realize that, you know, not that much has changed, um, and uh, so it really made the the show feel more, uh, more torn from the headlines than we even imagined. Since after working for this on three years, have you guys come to some sort of ultimate conclusion of what you think of the guilty verdict? Um, I mean, for myself, I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming, um, but this this show. The show is not trying to retry O.J. Simpson. That isn't really the point. I mean, the, the point of the show, and, and, and it's, it's the jumping-off point we got from Jeff Tubin's book, was that it, it really looks like he did it. Mm-hmm. Now, let's, let's explore everything that ha- was happening in society and the world to understand why the jury did not convict him. And, and then that, that, is, that is the plot of the show. Right. And that's why we were so, uh, as, as guys who just wrote movies before, we wrote movies that had a two-hour limit. Right. And uh, we never would have done O.J. as a movie because if this was a movie, it would have been just, you know, the stuff you know, just the facts, just the parts of the trial that, you know, basically a recreation. But having 10 hours to explore all these characters we've been talking about, all the issues that we've been talking about, it really gives you a sense of, of this a portrait of, of of what was happening in America in the 1990s, and that was very that, that that was really why we did it. And and do you do you know if he's seen anything himself? Oh, Jay, I mean, <laughs> what's very funny is um um <laughs> we've had, we've heard a couple different reports. <laughs> the first report was that OJ's prison does have a television set and does get cable. But their cable network doesn't get FM. Okay. So OJ wasn't going to be allowed to see it. Uh, then the, one of the tabloid newspapers this week now says that the guards are taunting OJ by making him watch it. Okay. <laughs> and relive, relive the horror of it. Are they making him watch or are they coming in and doing recaps every week for OJ? I, I don't know. I, so far, so far no, one, no one's gotten to the bottom of this. Right, right, right. It sounds like a clockwork orange type of scenario then. Oh, yeah, that'd be, yeah. He's got those those little things on his eyes. (laughs) Um, And what's next for you guys? Uh, We're actually uh, adapting another uh, book by Jeffrey Tubin, a book that he's uh, putting out this summer about another very, very famous um, crime uh, in the United States, uh, the kidnapping of Patty Hearst. Oh, wow. Hearst. And uh, that took place in the the mid-1970s. And... um, that as as a movie, okay, as a, a movie for Fox 2000, and also with our with our uh, producing partners, uh, Nina Jacobson and, and Brad Simpson, who did this show with us. Oh, cool! Do you have casting for that already? Uh, not yet. Okay. 
We have to write it first. Okay, okay. I'll let you do that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. This was a really, a really an honor for me. And, and um, I've seen a few of the episodes, and I'm, people are going to love it here as well. It really is a great series. Well, it's fun. Just, uh, just to give you a little, you, you, you talked about reading Dominic Dunn, mm-hmm. uh, you know, his report. He shows up in episode five, uh, oh, and, and his stuff is quite extraordinary. He's, he's, he's a lot of fun. Played by the uh, great actor Robert Morse. Thank you so much to Mr. Alexander and Mr. Karaszewski. The People vs. O.J. Simpson American Crime Story premieres in Sweden on Sunday, March 6th on SVT and SVT Play and is running now on FX in the U.S. And thank you so much for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at PodPopCulture or visit the homepage popcultureconfidential.com and send us your thoughts on the show. This show was edited by Moa Larsson, music by Carl Boy, and produced by René Witterstedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thank you so much. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately 7 minutes.